Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Building the Base. I'm here with uh, Lauren Badula. And as many of you have listened to the show before know, we really look for uh, interesting guests, especially those who have done lots of different things in private sector and maybe in government. Uh, and this episode, we've got one of those guys. Nick Sina has been one of these guys that's been in the White House. He's been in the FCC. He's been in academia, he's been in, uh, in private industry and venture capital, and really has had an intriguing view on how we need to move forward as a nation, particularly in software and IT. And so we're super excited to have you, Nick. Welcome, uh, welcome to Building the Base. Well, thank you, Hondo. Uh, good to see you. Good to see Lauren. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you. And as Hondo said, you've had a really incredible career, having been in the private sector, the deputy chief technology officer in the White House, to the Federal Communications Commission, and in academia. And all of these really seem to have some linkage to national security. So could you tell our listeners what started you on this journey and what drove you to move to and from such a diverse set of job experiences? Sure. So my, you know, I'd been a, a White House intern when I was 20. And that actually convinced me to go into business. I think I saw a bunch of uh, smart minds who were worried about how high candles on Bill Clinton's 50th birthday cake should be. And I just thought that was a, a waste of brain power. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to go into the business. And I did management consulting, business school, venture capital. I was on my honeymoon four or five years out of business school. I opened the newspaper and it says Lehman Brothers goes bust. The only problem is I had just started at Lehman Brothers Venture Partners. Uh, new partner track role. I was all excited to help open the Boston office. And so I turned to my wife and said, you know, honey, you thought you married a venture capitalist? Not so much. Um, and so, you know, with complete naivete, I was like, oh, I'm going to go get a job in the Obama administration, having very little idea uh, what that meant and how competitive that was. But I think sometimes you need that naivete and determination. And so uh, I managed to talk my way into the FCC and get hired part of the National Broadband Plan, one of these blue ribbon commissions that was looking at the intersection of uh, advanced communications, broadband, and certain national areas. And because I had been doing some clean tech investing, as well as traditional software investing at, in my prior firms, um, I guess I, I was a, a good fit there. And I had done some telecom earlier in my career. So I was at the FCC, got to know the, uh, the first US CTO, Anish Chopra. Anish hired me into the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And I ended up staying there four years. I was uh, became the U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer, which impressed my mother to no end, but uh, again, not my wife. And after that, I, I came out and uh, signed up with Insight Partners, one of the largest uh, software investors uh, in, in startups and scale-ups. Uh, I'm based in the Boston area, but, but uh, New York is headquartered in, in New York. And I also signed up with uh, Harvard Kennedy School. And uh, so I've been an adjunct there for a, a number of years. And so you guys are both very kind because I feel like I have managed to fail across venture capital and academia and government uh, throughout the course of my career. Well, we, we all succeed by failing. Uh, I'm certainly in that realm. So let's take, take me back to the time in the White House. So you're there, you know, it's a little bit of a daunting thought in charge of understanding technology 
while saddled with a bureaucracy that seems to be more and more challenged dealing with technology. Well, what, what did you learn there? What was that experience like? You know, and, and how did you square the speed at which technology seemed to be accelerating and the challenges it seems to get any policy in place due to all sorts of different factors? Uh, you know, they seem to be on divergent paths. Yeah, and, and the, the, the CTO's office in, in, in the White House uh, is really a technology and innovation office, which is, is focused not just on federal IT and, and technology for, for, for federal and defense missions, but also how do we harness the power of technology in healthcare and education and public safety and so forth. And so uh, one of the things we learned pretty quickly was how do we harness the, the power of folks working outside of government? Uh, and, and in fact, one of uh, my responsibilities was President Obama's open data initiatives. So how do we take data uh, and continue to make it a public asset and have private sector entrepreneurs and innovators build on it, use it, create apps and services that help the American public? So to give some examples, weather data, you know, you have a multi-billion dollar uh, weather economy, but that is built on weather data that the federal government collects through satellites and buoys, et cetera. Same thing with GPS, right? Here we have a military system that has been opened up for civilian use, and you have all kinds of private sector use cases, businesses and, and verticals built on top of that. And so one of the things we did was, you know, how can we uh, get the federal government to make data more open? Uh, while protecting privacy, of course, but there's plenty of data like geospatial data or climate data that you could make more available, put APIs around, clean it up, et cetera. And yes, we did it from a policy perspective of how do you partner with the Office of Management Budget and the federal CIO in partnership with the US CTO? Like, so how do we write you know, memos uh, to the federal bureaucracy? But you learn pretty quickly that you know a a, uh, a memo can be slow walked and ignored by by the the vast bureaucracy, especially the Department of Defense, which was very good at, at ignoring those kinds of things. Um, and so, like, how do you build that enthusiasm from inside and outside of government to help create the conditions in which policy is not only grudgingly accepted but celebrated? And so that's where we did things like data jams and hackathons, and 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 we called them data paloozas. And we'd have cabinet secretaries celebrating private sector innovation, celebrating private sector entrepreneurs who are creating apps to help farmers. But it was also celebrating that that uh, federal worker who had been opening up and making that data more available to researchers or to, to, to innovators. And so if you held up the internal champion and the and the external entrepreneur, then we weren't giving money away. And you don't do that from the White House anyway. But if you're finding you're creating a climate to celebrate this that makes the policy pieces, which is typically uh, uh, a lot more dry, uh, more receptive, and you actually generate more momentum. Nick, this idea of data as a, a public asset is a really interesting one because so many companies that we talk to who are trying to do business in the national security or defense markets um, have trouble accessing data, and, and it almost acts as a barrier to entry. And you might see this with some of the companies you invest in now or boards you sit in now. And so you've looked at this kind of holistically from the White House. Do you have any thoughts about national security specifically or advice to companies who are looking for these data sets like geospatial data um, and, and how they can start stretching the legs of their tech accessing data rather than seen as a barrier to entry? Uh, well, Lauren, I, I would totally agree with you that that uh, we have a ton of data that is locked up in proprietary systems that, you know, primes are building weapon systems in national security and, and the ability for 
not just new entrants, but for the for the Department of Defense to get access to that data and to be able to to uh, clean it up, to understand it, to use machine learning, to think about readiness and predictive maintenance, to think about cyber protection, whatever the 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 use cases are. I think that is is a a tremendous challenge, but I also think it's it's an opportunity. I mean, that's that's part of the investment thesis behind Shift Five. You know, I'm on the board of this really exciting company that that comes out of, uh, you know, some of the the founding entrepreneurs come out of our Army Cyber Command, but it also has the the uh, uh, commercial DNA. Some of the other founding executives and early executives come out of Tanium, uh, you know, a cybersecurity company. And so that's just just one example of a of a company that is is working to get the get the data and protect the data from planes and tanks and and and, and so forth. And so this this question of, of access to data, I think, is a really uh, big one because the next generation of entrepreneur, uh, especially venture backed entrepreneur, helping uh, the national security mission has got to get access to that kind of data. So you have to be thinking about you know. Uh, interoperability and application programming interfaces and all of those kinds of things. Um, and, and I'm glad to see the Department of Defense uh, move that direction. Uh, you saw Cath uh, Hicks came out with uh, some, some data decrees. Uh, I think uh, uh, Dave Spurk led a lot of that. Uh, so that's, that's really encouraging to see the, the department kind of push on, on greater interoperability and access to data. But it, it will remain a, a opportunity in, in, in my mind. I'm, I'm glad to hear, Nick, that's your take. And it does seem like there's there's improvement in the space. And so hopefully we just keep that momentum up. Uh, a, a topic we wanted to hit on, it really, from your perspective as a venture capitalist and You've had the time in government as well, but venture capital is starting to become a bit of a, a buzzword um, in the department and in the national security space. So could you tell us a little bit about what the goals of venture capital are when it comes to DOD specifically and where you see the goals between your community and DOD aligning and maybe where you see potential gaps? Yeah, I, I see it in in a couple ways. So one, uh, there is most of venture capital which sees the federal government, the national security enterprise, the Department of Defense as simply another sales territory, right? And, and actually a quite small sales territory compared to the rest of the world. And I, I, I once got yelled at by, by a three-star and I just said like, look, you know, you're the NTE. He was, he was talking about non-traditional entity. I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. The, the army is actually the NTE here. And, and so, for, for a lot of companies, whether they're enterprise software or cybersecurity, uh, I realize the Department of Defense is a, is a good-sized market, but it's actually smaller than financial services or healthcare or, or, or all of the, uh, you know, Fortune 500, uh, big tech, et, et cetera, especially when you put all those things, things together. Then there's a set of companies that tend to focus in part or in, or in full on uh, the national security space, which we tend to call uh, defense or dual use. Uh, and those types of, of, of companies have some national security or DOD uh, DNA. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm on the board of uh, Rebellion Defense, Shift 5, Hawkeye 360, and Leo Lab. And all four of those companies fall into that category where the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the national security uh, um, uh, uh, set of agencies 
are either a primary or, or, or a major customer base for them. And they see the world uh, a little bit differently because they just have a different uh, sales motion. What is similar across all of these companies is that they tend to be product companies and they tend to want to sell the same product again and again. And I think this is where the Department of Defense and where the national security ecosystem sometimes misses out and doesn't understand is that these companies fundamentally are trying to sell the same thing over and over again. And so maybe it's some sort of uh, um, uh, scheduling thing. That scheduling thing has got to work for the different services, for the different COCOMs, for the, for the DOD and the MOD. And yes, there may be some uh, modest customization, but you're fundamentally trying to sell a thing. And the way that we now, I, I should, not we, but the Department of Defense, I should say, uh, uh, tends to think about things is not in terms of buying products, right? It, ter- it thinks in terms of requirements, right? And, and rights requirements. And so, it, and even when it goes to buy technology, it, it is very hardware focused and very people focused. And yet the role of software, whether it's cyber, whether it's autonomy, what, whether, whether it's, it's even conventional weapon systems. I mean, look at the lines of code on uh, modern aircraft, right? We're software is going to be increasingly critical and we have to be thinking about what's the role of venture-backed software companies and, and software-enabled companies in this ecosystem. And that means that they are fundamentally product-based companies. And this, this is just something that the, the Department of Defense doesn't really get. Uh, and, I, and I watch it struggle with you know, a bunch of valley of death, a lot of funding of FFRDCs and, and, and systems integrators to, you know, and research labs to kind of study the problem and so forth. And I, I think I can boil it down, if you'd let me attempt this, into, into two kind of major problems here. The, the first one is what I like to call the bureaucratic cruft, right? So that is the challenge of getting an authority to operate, the ATO, the accreditation on network. It's getting the facilities clearance, getting access to classified data, uh, getting getting uh, facilities clearance and and SCIF and 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 if you're going uh, uh, through State Department, getting ITAR, right? So like all of this stuff makes sense in theory, but in practice, it all adds up and it all becomes very manual, very paper based, um, and so it just becomes this huge tax. So for those kind of conventional venture back companies that see the DOD as simply, you know, one territory, sales territory, it almost becomes insurmountable. Uh, they're like, what's FedRAMP? What's, what's IL-4, IL-5? What's, what's FCL? What's, what's MillCloud? Like, it just goes on and on and on. And they just say, you know what? I'm going to wait a couple of years and I will do, I will enter, you know, instead of being $50 million, I'll wait till I'm a $100 million company before I even try and tackle this territory because it's so expensive. Then there are the defense and dual use companies that have to endure that tax. And, you know, the, the big primes are set up to navigate it and understand it. And they, they I mean, that's part of their lifeblood. But these next generation of, of companies, you know, that is a significant cost to them. But it's, it's surmountable. I just think we need to find ways to streamline it, modernize it, you know, do it concurrently rather than sequential, automate it, so forth. So that bureaucratic cruft would be my uh, big problem number one. And big problem number two would be the lack of operational buying. And I, I, I fundamentally do not think that we buy enough software uh, from the program executive offices, from the programs. Uh, we tend to still give requirements to the hard, hardware-based primes who write software. 
and we don't we don't buy enough software at scale. So a lot of the conversation around OTAs and cibers and innovation and all that stuff that's that's great, and there's lots of think, ways that we can do to improve that. Uh, but if we fundamentally don't have the operational buying, uh, I think we're just we're we're just we the venture community uh, and the growth community can find ways to fund these companies, and we'll fund these companies massively if there is a real market. But if there is not a market on the mission side, because we keep giving requirements back to the prime, then I think we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot, and we're not, and we're these companies will either dry up or they'll go elsewhere. And that's that's not what we want. So forgive me, I kind of went on a little rant there. Yeah, uh, really thoughtful things. I mean, I I think this year the DoD has the largest R&D budget in its history. Uh, I almost think that's a failure um, because there's plenty of R&D money around, as you say, uh, within the department, within the venture community, elsewhere. Uh, what there's not enough is buying uh, and buying buying products as they're used, not buying them and then tailoring them to, to death. Uh, the, the fact we have to develop so much unique stuff, uh, to your point, really, really hinders us. Uh, I want to go back a little bit to your comment on open data, which I think is really thoughtful. And, and in my view, when you know, a lot of us in Ben's here have been talking about this future industrial base, or we contend it's a future industrial network. And I think two things have to happen. One is this idea of open data, data visibility, transparency, uh, and fluidness. And the second is networking. And if I look at what commercial did, right, it opened up data and then it massively networked. And that's what allowed the, the tremendous efficiencies in new products. It, do you think that's a good analogy of where, where we need to take our industrial capacity to, to get uh, what we need out of it to be both secure and prosperous for the next 50 years? Yeah, I, I, I love this idea of, of network. I, I think it's a fantastic analogy. Uh, the friendly amendment I would make is that there are different types of networks, right? And so you can have a very planned, you can have a very planned hierarchical top-down network, and then you can have networks like the internet, where uh, you know uh, the the standards were loose, the the uh, ability to iterate on those standards, the ability, and there's 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 lots of problematic pieces to the internet, right? It wasn't designed with security. And people said, hey, if we knew that it was going to turn into this, maybe we would build a little bit more security into some of the protocols and, and, and those kinds of things. So I, 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 the Internet is, is not perfect as an analogy, but I, I think the, that that ability to, to uh, be loosely coupled and loosely connected and, and to very quickly, you know, things that are working continue to get more users and rapidly scale, right, and get to billions of users. Uh, and we don't necessarily have billions of soldiers or billions of airmen or, or, or what have you. Uh, um, but we may end up with, you know, billions of autonomous devices in, you know, as sensors. Right. Um, and so th that kind of uh, hyperscale, but also to kind of reward things that are working and to deprecate those things that aren't. And and we, we like to fail very slowly at kind of massive scale. Uh, rather than than being able to kind of uh, provide money and 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 resources and and training and all those things to things that are working right, so it, it is it is there are some really great analogies to the to the, the network one. I just want to think of it more as a bottoms up standards based uh, um, where where more more people can plug into that network. Yeah, yeah, you you wouldn't want to take on a 
competitor who's centrally planned by trying to out, out centrally plan them, right? You want to leverage the inherent strengths of capitalism and free markets and partners and allies. Uh, I like that. I, I, I will accept your friendly amendment of a loosely coupled uh, future industrial network. I think that's a, that's a great uh, addition to the, uh, to the thought piece. So Nick, I want to pivot and talk about a book that you recently co-authored and it's called Hack Your Bureaucracy, Get Things Done No Matter What Your Role on Any Team. And it, it seems to apply to what we're talking about today too, which is really solving hard problems or figuring out how to get different communities to work together effectively. And so wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what inspired you to write this book and what they can expect to learn from it. Yeah, and um, so my co-author, Marina Nitza and I, uh, I spent four years in the White House. Uh, she was in the White House working with me and then went on to be the CTO, the Chief Technology Officer of the VA, which is a Fortune 10 enterprise. Right now it's got 400,000 employees, had a little less then, but uh, uh, at the age of 28, she never finished college, uh, probably the youngest federal civilian SES that I know. Uh, and, and um, you know, she couldn't get anyone to meet with her. She couldn't get anything done initially. And so part of this is, is Marina's story about how do you, when you're underestimated, start to make progress. And if you, if you look where the VA is now, trust in the VA to do the right thing has actually gone up 25 percentage points. Uh, and you may, you may remember that the VA used to be, you know, front page news. Uh, um, the Daily Show was making fun of, of the, f- the floors were actually falling because of the weight of the paper. And so that, of course, there were, were, were uh, thousands of people who were involved in, in the improvement of the VA, but part of it is some of, some of her stories and some of my, my personal stories, but more importantly, those of our friends and people that we admire, not just in government, but in, 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 in big tech, in startups, uh, in Amazon, Google, in all kinds of places. And, and you know, we were really wondering, like, what makes people effective in organization? And, you know, we, we, we start the book with, with two things. One, with Marina um, getting yelled at by President Obama in a cabinet meeting uh, for not shipping software fast enough at the VA. And she explains to him uh, about the, the bureaucracy taking, taking some time to adopt a new methodology to, to, to ship software. And he offers to, to help. He actually offers to record a video uh, for VA employees. And she's, she says very respectfully, you know, uh, I'll come back to you, Mr. President, if that's necessary. Uh, but it's that epiphany of uh, the leader of the free world is not going to be able to solve the VA. She had to figure out how this thing really works, how decisions really get made, how change really happens. And so part of it, that opening story is her determination and her epiphany to kind of go back and, and figure out how this thing works and then how to start chipping away at it. And so we have a bunch of, of tactics and techniques uh, uh, about you know, how to start small and build momentum, how to work on the right thing, uh, you know, how, to, how to build an informal team. Too many people get focused on all the people that formally report to you or all the formal resources. Uh, but both Marina and I have been in situations in our careers where we've had zero people reporting to us. And yet we were told, I mean, in, in, in her case, you know, she was told to go fix the VA, right? And I was, I, was, I was told to lead President Obama's open data initiatives, but with zero resources. And so this question of how do you get started? How do you uh, get people to, to, to scrub in? Uh, how do you give credit liberally? Uh, there's just a bunch, of, a, a bunch of things like that. The other thing that you might appreciate is we start the book 
with the sabotage manual of the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. Uh, and you may have you may have uh, seen this; it's kind of uh, um, infamous. But there's a bunch of things like referring things to a committee of five or more, uh, and and you know reopening the, the the minutes of the last meeting and, and starting to, to question the the you know whether those that was a good decision. And so uh, ultimately, we're all in bureaucracies or adjacent to them. Whether it's your homeowners association, whether it's parent teacher association, city local city government. Your organization probably, uh, if it's of any size, has a series of rules and specialization and so forth. And yeah, a lot of that is, it, it can be outdated, but it's not all by definition going to be bad, right? So the question is, how do you understand how that works and how can you start to show progress and ultimately, you know, use jujitsu or, or, or judo, but you want to use the strength of the organization against itself, um, and so we tell some stories about that and, and, uh, uh, you know, one national security one, we tell the story of the founding of, of Kessel Run, the, now the premier, uh, software factory in the air force. So it's, it's a good book, hack your bureaucracy. Uh, it's, it's available for pre-order and I, I hope the listeners go out and uh, buy it. Thank you for letting me plug it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love that, Nick. So September 13th, I think is release date for all of you listening out there, uh, um, so, um, you know, we, we were talking earlier before we got going about, I, I had a campaign at special ops about blowing up bureaucracy and everybody thought the, uh, you know, the speed there was because of unique authorities and it was more about mindset, right. And, and how does each person take individual accountability? What's your, so give us the, what's the favorite Nick hack that, uh, if you had to pick one out of that, what's your, what's your favorite go-to move? Oh, there's a lot of them in the book. We have over 50 of them. I, I don't want everyone. I want the favorite. I'll, 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 I want the favorite one. It's not, it's among my favorite and uh, it's, it's act as if it's essentially the, the stone soup uh, a story. I don't know if you're familiar with stone soup, but it's, it's this, this idea of a, of a villager or of a traveler coming to a village and asking for food and being denied, but then setting up a soup and, and essentially with a stone and, and, and hot water getting tricking the villagers into putting in carrots and, and salt and meat, et cetera. And, and so some people see that, you know, as a, as a, as a metaphor for, for sharing. Uh, but I really see that as a metaphor for, for entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship inside of a large organization, right. Where, uh, you know, very rarely do people have authority to say no globally, right. Maybe when, when you were, were the acting undersecretary of the Navy, you could say, we're not going to do this anywhere in the Navy, but your ability to enforce it, Hondo, probably wasn't that great, right? So if you act as if you can go around and you can ask for advice rather than permission, and you start to get people who, who, who give you say, well, this would work if you did it this way or that way. And you start to kind of, you're, you're socializing an idea, but you're also getting feedback. And maybe you find someone who's willing to let you try it with a little bit of resources, a little bit of money, or a little bit of space or, or, or what have you. And in the course of, uh, of, of social, that's, that's akin to that first villager putting in the, the first carrot. And then once you have the carrot, you're like, well, I got the carrot, but now I need the salt, right? And because the, the, the first one has put the carrot in, you're more likely to get the salt. It's the same thing of if there's some small research lab or PEO inside the Navy that maybe started this, maybe I can have a little bit more credibility and I'm, that credibility is going to build. And so it, it gets to this idea of how do you start small and build momentum? And so stone soup or, or acting as if 
inside a large organization uh, is one of my favorite tactics. Uh, and I, I, I use that in, in, in the White House to get a bunch of uh, electric utilities, which the White House and the federal government has very little authority over because they're mostly regulated the state. We got a bunch of them to commit to make energy data available back to consumers of, of all types. And we called it the Green Button Initiative. And essentially, we celebrated utilities uh, who are willing to commit to make that available via a, an open standard so that third-party apps with consumer consent could be built on it, right? And so that was, it was a classic example of we had to, you know, convince colleagues in the White House that this was a good idea, and we had to, we had to convince the Department of Energy and NIST that it was a good idea, but we had to convince a bunch of electric, electric utilities that this was, this was a good idea, and they're, of course, very wary of anything federal as it relates to retail electricity. So uh, sorry for the long story, but act as if or stone soup would be kind of one of my favorites there. I'm going to uh, I'm going to also shamelessly plug a, a book by a, a, a mutual friend of ours, Mitch Wise, and We the Possibility, which uh, in reading that uh, has a lot of those uh, tactics uh, applied within uh, within public service entrepreneurship. Yeah, Mitch, Mitch's book is is fantastic. Uh, I'd highly highly recommend it. It's available now. Two things really stood out to me, Nick, from that. And one was from a few minutes ago, but when you talk about using the strength of an organization against itself, I think that's such a great idea. Um, and then we talk about on our show a lot, cultural barriers, where there's this interest on all sides of the problem uh, to solve it. And we've spent time admiring the problem, but want to act now. So to just start acting as if wherever we can and, and kind of those grassroots efforts and to see how we can make change. And, and a huge part of that is the people, right? And so as we think about this issue we're trying to solve in terms of um, an evolving industrial base and the needs to meet national security threat priorities, the, the people are so key. And I, I know you see that, Nick, too, when you're investing in companies, the tech can be fantastic. But if you don't have the leadership and the people to lead the companies, it's probably less appealing. So I'd love to get your thoughts on talent. And you have a really interesting use case, too, with your experience with USDS, um, the United States Digital Service, and bringing in tech talent, trying to attract them. What do you think the national security community can do to continue to generate interest in serving or working together, maybe from the outside, too, but collaborating for national security? Any thoughts on really increasing that interest in talent? Uh, uh, this is a, a fantastic topic, Laura. Uh, um, so I, I'm a big fan in, in what I like to call people flow. And so how can we bring people into and out of organizations? And that can be interns and fellows, executives and residents. Uh, I was really excited to see the Defense Ventures Fellows Program uh, and, and Insight Partners has participated in that. And so we've we've hosted airmen and 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 sailors and and um, and soldiers who spend six weeks their active duty spend six weeks inside of uh, inside helping us and then they go back to their service and they bring what they've learned about the innovation economy about venture capital about startups and scale ups and so I love that it's just one small example of of people flow um, so I, I do think we have to find ways for private sector tech talent. To, to serve in government, not just tech talent, but it's, it's the area that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, the most passionate and knowledgeable about. And so, you know, we have been calling this idea essentially civic leave, which is, you know, how do you take a, a year or two 
and, and, and take leave of whether you're in big tech or in big finance, doing tech in big finance or, or, or corporate America or in startups, how do, you, how do you take that leave and go serve in the national security space for, for a few years? Uh, I, I think tech and service is probably a better rebranding than, than civic leave. Um, but whatever we call it, this idea of uh, how can civilians bring their cybersecurity, their, their, their digital, their product, their design uh, skill sets to the national security uh, community. And so that's one important way, uh, because not only are they bringing their skill sets, but they're also learning a ton uh, and gaining appreciation for the mission and the complexity and for the culture, right? Because they're able to start speaking some of that, that culture. So I think that's one, one piece where, where I really want to see us do more as a defense in, industrial base is, is having uh, non-traditional companies send people to serve for uh, you know, a period of time in, in directly in, in government and, and mostly as a civilian, although there's a few services that are explored direct commissioning and, and those kinds of things. I think we should do it conversely too. Is find ways to serve in in especially the the startup and scale up uh, uh, community and 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 so like I'm passionate about about those kinds of things. We also have really great talent inside of of the national security uh, base and and so the question of how do we how do we uh, keep and upskill uh, is something that I, I I'm I'm really fascinated by. Um, you know, part of the problem is uh, we we don't have enough trajectory uh, for product, for design, for data scientists, et cetera, right? Especially if you're, you know, if you're a, a you know, a major or a captain or, you know, you're kind of coming up and it's, it's, okay, well, we'll let you be a data scientist for now, but then you have to go be an executive officer out in the field for, for a couple of years, et cetera. And people who... Who, who are technical and hands-on keyboard, you know, they want to keep refining their technical skills. They may not want to uh, um, be the generalist that uh, uh, the military often often promotes. Uh, you know, people don't usually leave just because of money. Uh, it is because of the opportunity to have an impact, their boss, and all of those kinds of things. So uh, I think these, these conversations about talent are too often focused on, on, on just pay, which I think is important. And we want to try and improve uh, public sector pay, defense pay, all the, the, those kinds of things. But I think it's more about how do we find ways for, for them to, to really uh, uh, have the opportunities to have impact, to work in more modern environments. I mean, you know, if, if it's so frustrating to, to try and do something and you, it takes you minutes for your computer to load and it's a, a, a and you're not able to use kind of modern uh, development tools you know you get frustrated right and so i think that's another piece that I'm, I'm i'm passionate about is how do we kind of improve the environment uh both physical and and the the virtual environment that the national sec- security space works in um and so to that end I, I i'm very excited about the there's a new u.s digital core which is about early career technologists uh, serving in public sector. We just got this launched. This is actually uh, a federal program that the Biden administration uh, is championing and is, is, is one of their initiatives. Right now it's 40 uh, federal civilian early career technologists for two-year uh, uh, fellowships. 
uh, but I'm hopeful it expands to uh, the Department of Defense. Um, you know, traditionally, the intelligence community has done a really nice job of, of going early and, and, and spending time identifying uh, talent. Uh, part of it is the classification challenges have been so challenging that they have uh, uh, made sure that they, they went early. But I think it's something that we could do in, in, in defense better, especially on the civilian side, where traditionally uh, we have not paid enough attention to the uh, federal civilian workforce in, in defense. Yeah, that's that's really a, that's a key point. And I think it's only um, accentuated with the current conflict in the Ukraine. And I, what I would contend is the first time where pure commercial and some of the companies you're familiar with, Hawkeye 360, whatever, are having profound impacts uh, on the battlefield uh, in a commercial sense, uh, not just uh, in a you know traditional dual use sense. Do you see that as a uh, as a trend continuing? And um, and and how do you think about this? I, I think for a while we tried to separate you know national prosperity, national security were two kind of completely different things, and they almost by trade wanted to keep away from each other. And you know, it, there's far less. DOD only tech or commercial only tech, there's tech and it's just how you're using it. What's your, you're kind of in a unique position to see that. What's your thought on that, Nick? Yeah. So, I mean, starting with the, the Ukraine part of that question, uh, it's my, my impression from my limited vantage point of, you know, being on the board of, of, of a few companies that commercial technologies and commercial data uh, have a really important role to play. And you can see that in, in, in public ways. I mean, a company like Hawkeye 360 has been public about the GPS jamming that they've been able to show. And they put this on their, on their website about, you know, look at the GPS jamming. You see that when you watch CNN and you see the, the, the Maxar uh, um, pictures, right? Um, and so uh, um, I think that the Department of Defense has done a really uh, nice job of declassifying and making available commercial data uh, um, to the American public and to the world to show the atrocities, to show to show the troop movements, to show uh, to show whatever. I I think we um, still like to build exquisite systems for exquisite people in government uh, a little too much, and uh, but I also see that not just as a problem but as an opportunity, and that's why. Uh, uh, we're funding some of the companies that we're funding. And I'm excited about some of the other uh, venture capital firms that are also funding, uh, sometimes with us and sometimes in, in, in other companies. Uh, but we have a collection of, of companies that are providing commercial capabilities. Again, uh, that these are things that they're also serving either other militaries or the commercial space industry or the maritime and, and fishing industry Right, you know the the that same that same data that Hawkeye three hundred and sixty is collecting can also help with with uh, poaching and smuggling, right? Uh, and so there there's a lot of uh, use cases for for uh, um, you know a lot of this information. Um, and so I I think that um, we need to make sure that we continue as a defense department and as a national security apparatus to to find ways to Try buy and scale uh, uh, commercial capabilities, and and we're we're still in the early days of that. Um, and you know, if we don't, we're going to be in a situation where our 
our ability to deter in great power conflict uh, in, in strategic competition is going to be diminished. And that's not going to be good for our national security, for our values, right? Uh, it's going to be better for the authoritarian uh, uh, values. You know, our, our economy will continue to hum along just fine, but, but ultimately it's, it's, I think it's going to be um, uh, to the detriment of, of our way of life long-term. Um, and so I think it's a mistake to say, hey, we can all ignore the national security market because it's just custom and bureaucratic and those those kinds of things. And, and so it, it does have some some friction. It does have a culture. Uh, uh, um, and, and, you know, but part of the, the point of the book was was to write that you really have to understand stuff before you try and disrupt it. Right. And so I, I've. I've observed, I'm sure both of you have too, uh, people coming into the Defense Department uh, bashing themselves as disruptors, right? And, and, and then, um, you know, been unable to have the impact that they wanted to have. And, and, and part of that is because they, they uh, may not have recognized that, you know, the more that you partner and give credit away and build things so, so that, you know, if you get hit by a bus, it actually will continue, right? So it's the the, the no heroes kind of philosophy. Uh, um, finding all the people who have failed at something. We we talk about this in the book about uh, it was on the nineteenth try uh, that Marina was able to get something done, uh, only because when she proposed an idea, someone was nice enough to show her they actually had a binder of the eighteen previous proposals. And this was like, you know, how do you? How do you basically uh, um, update data once for a veteran? Like a veteran changes his or her address, and everyone been having this idea, and everyone thought this was a new idea. Every new, you know, political administration that came in was like, "Oh, we're going to just fix the VA, and you're going to be able to update your 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 data once as a veteran, and it's going to populate across uh, all of the all of the systems." And Marina, quite quite smart, my co-author from Hack Your Bureaucracy, she quite smartly went and talked to people who had tried it in the past and figured out why. Um, and so uh, knowing uh, the Department of Defense and understanding kind of how it makes decisions, uh, what the culture is, uh, we're going to need a number of, of disruptors that are homegrown from the system, as well as, as outside people flowing in who have the full respect and, and you know, is that balance between uh, respecting the, the mission uh, and the people and the processes and the rules uh, while you seek to disrupt them, right? And it's that balance of, if you don't understand them, then your ability to disrupt them and to actually improve them and make, you know, impact at, at massive scale is going to be that much harder. I think that is such an important point, Nick. And it, it also makes me think of this trend that you're part of, which is more and more investors looking at the national security community to not only invest, but become an interlocutor between the communities and help translate things like use cases or processes, bureaucratic cruft, as you say, so that it is easier to navigate and disrupt. And and so you're acting as, in many ways, a mentor to these companies. You're sitting on the boards and helping them, not just by writing a check, but through um, market development and use cases and the like, because you sat on the U.S. government side and have that experience. I, I'm wondering, Nick, if you have had any mentors around, along the way that have really influenced your path um, and trajectory or ability to disrupt. 
Yeah, I've had a lot. I've been very, very fortunate to have have great mentors uh, and great bosses. Um, you know, all three of the chief technology officers of of, of the U.S. and the Obama administration were were friends and mentors and, and great bosses, and and I learned a lot from them. Watching, you know, how how to treat other people, how to uh, celebrate ideas wherever they come from, right? How to how to uh, um, uh, not be afraid to ask stupid questions, and and you know, I think I think when when leaders admit they don't know something or ask people to explain because they're confused, I think that just sets the right tone of psychological uh, safety. So uh, you know, I'd have to put it, Anish Chopra, Todd Park, and Megan Smith. Those those. Uh, First, uh, uh, I guess the, the CTOs in the Obama administration up there as mentors. Uh, I've had a lot of mentors in my career. I've been fortunate to, uh, maybe just because I keep asking dumb questions uh, and people sometimes uh, give me answers. Um, and so I, I really like that part of teaching. And that's that's what I like doing at the, the, the Kennedy School. Uh, truth be told, I'm actually a pretty mediocre instructor. Um, but, uh, I enjoy listening, uh, to the students and helping them. Uh, and what's great is, uh, a number of them are coming from public service or going into public service. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to also teach students from the college and the business school and the engineering school and the design school. And so I really like that kind of interdisciplinary piece to, to it, wherever, wherever I can kind of draw from those different, uh, uh, disciplines. Um, and I, you know, I, I encourage them to, uh, be more ambitious. I think too oftentimes, uh, you know, we, we get trapped by our constraints and this is true. If you're in an organization for a long time, like you get trapped by those constraints and this, this question of like, what's a, what's a fixed constraint versus something that actually could change. And I've been guilty of this too, where you're working in an organization long enough and you something that someone else may come in and say, hey, that's variable. We could change it if we did X, Y, and Z. You start to assume it as a fixed constraint. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I like to remind the, the, the students that I have the privilege of teaching and, and, and mentoring. And, you know, truth be told, I learn more from them than they learn from me. Uh, but, you know, for them to, to aim high and, 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 um, you know that nobody was born knowing knowing anything, um, and and that uh, you know we're we're gonna as long as you're you're working hard, you know you you have your integrity, you know your uh, um, and you're kind to people, you know things will go uh, you'll go far, right? Um, and so a little little bit of hustle and elbow grease and kindness will get you there. Well, Nick, it's been awesome having you here on the show. We uh, we kind of went all over the place, uh, but I think for any of our listeners out there who heard. Now, here's a guy that's been all over the place, but still wants to give back. And so uh, I can't wait to read your book when it comes out. Uh, September 13th, I think it is, uh, Hacking Your Bureaucracy, uh, how anybody can have a role in that and not, not be a victim, but be an advocate uh, for positive change. Thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Thank you, Hondo. Thank you, Lauren. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. You've been listening to Building the Base a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.